0: Welcome to Rocking Our Prize. Today I want to learn what drives accountability. Why do some, but not other, poor, rural Indian citizens come to make claims on the state and push for improved service delivery? To learn more. I'm joined by the wonderful, the magnificent Dr. Gabby Crooks-Wisner, Assistant Professor of Politics and Global Studies at the University of Virginia. And her book really is is one of my favourite political science books over the past couple of years. So this is a real treat for me. I like it in particular because it uses qualitative research to identify an issue and then uses quantitative research to rigorously test it, and then supplements it with more... Um, comparative qualitative research. So this is a joy, and uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I will. Gabby, welcome. Thank you, Alice. That's one of the nicest introductions I have ever received. You're very welcome, <laughs> and as, as most hides of us, I'm a huge fan. Right, so you, I, what I love about this book is it starts from you wondering about rural Rajasthan, and you observe this subnational variation that some people in acute deprivation, in chronic need for war- water, uh, making claims on the state, pushing for wells, and others aren't.
1: Yes. So the starting point for this project is me literally wandering around rural Rajasthan mm. as a PhD student. Yes. Right on off. I've defended my perspectives and I've mm. landed in the field and realized very quickly I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. Mm. And from this place of great cluelessness, wandering around and having lots of conversations that did not fit my priors that rocked my priors yes. right so so let me give you an example um talking to people in very similar rural villages yes. right so villages just a few kilometers apart in the same administrative block under similar level, levels of poverty yes. um people working you know in the same occupations similar caste composition and you know, going and talking to people and saying, you know, here's a broken water hand pump. Um, this is a, a an arid, drought-prone mm. state. Everyone needs water. Everyone wants to talk about water. Mm. So the first thing you always talk about as an outsider coming in is usually water. Mm. Um, and having these conversations where people would say completely opposite things about, first of all, whether they would engage the local state around drinking water. So the hand pump is broken you need something to drink, right? whose responsibility is that? Are you going to go and complain to an official mm-hmm. and say, hey, the pump's broken, who's going to fix this? Mm-hmm. Or will you turn um, to you know, local kinship networks, or to water trading, or to just walking five kilometers to another source? right? Are you going to hold the state to account? Are you going to make a claim on the state? Mm-hmm. Huge variation in whether that happened at all. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, even among those who were engaging and demanding and petitioning and contacting bureaucrats and politicians to make these claims, enormous variation in how. Right? So from going through political brokers to direct interface with very local officials to level hopping up the chain of command. Um, And this was a puzzle, right? And it was a puzzle because these were consistently poor rural villages. Mm. And what I quickly started to realize was poverty is not uniformly constraining, right? Under the same
0: structural conditions,
1: really different responses. Yes.
0: Um, And this was puzzling. And through your qualitative research, you also saw that people had different expectations of the state. So some expected the state to respond to their grievances and some expected that if you went to the state then the state might help you if you mobilized enough and others were much more despondent yes. others were much more hopeless yes and there was also this suggestion in this initial quality of research that people were ma- they're making reference to other villages. Like, they've got water and I'm going to push for it too because they had higher expectations having seen that people did that. And so through this initial qualitative research, you think, right, now let me test this quantitatively. Now let me see if this, this plays out systematically. Yes. So you constructed this quantitative data set in Rajasthan, in rural Rajasthan. And you look at what might predict playmaking on government. Absolutely, right. And what do you find? Right. So
1: just to back up, just yes. just very slightly, right? So what the quality, of the initial qualitative work mm-hmm. did, it gave me a hunch.
0: Yes, right? And yes. the
1: hunch was exactly what you said. There's something about expectations. Yes. But where are those expectations coming from? They're coming from seeing other people, maybe in your own village or maybe in another village mm-hmm. or maybe five kilometers down yes. the road or maybe in a nearby town, engaging the state in different ways. Right. Yes. So people are looking around them and they're seeing the local state, different departments, etc., engaging people in this uneven variable way all around them and they're seeing that they're learning about that and that's affecting expectations yes right and so this was a hunch it was this notion that people were complaining about what government was not doing but doing it in reference to other people mm-hmm. in other places mm-hmm. and that was interesting to me yes. right? it was this yes. notion of kind of comparative grievance right yes i can see that water pump over there it's not here in my neighborhood why not mm. and this gives me the impetus to to make a claim to make absolutely a demand, right so that was the qualitative yes. hunch. then the survey data i wanted to know a couple of things i wanted to know how widespread are these patterns that I'm observing? I'm seeing lots of people actively engaging the state, lots of people engaging in claim-making in these varied ways. Is that widespread? Yes. Number two, I have this hunch about exposure, right? About exposure to uh, different types of people in different types of places, exposure to different social and spatial exposure, and that this is somehow catalytic, that this is somehow going to push people to make more claims. Um, Is that true? How could I measure that in a survey, right? So that becomes the survey design puzzle, which is yes. like, what can I ask people to get yes. this, right? So so essentially what I do across 100-plus um, villages and um, within that sort of sampling um, in different neighborhoods that represent mm. different cast compositions, um, asking people a lot of questions about what do you do, right? Yeah. Broken water pump, what do you do? Who do you go mm. to? Who do you talk to? Mm. Um, across, you know, a, a range, a bundles of goods and services that are both kind of individual household sort of yes. things, the more collective things, um, and a whole range of different possible channels of playmaking and ask people, what do you do? Mm. Um, but then I also ask people a whole bunch of questions about their networks, right? Mm. Their social networks, their occupational networks, trying to understand how much people are bound by caste, by village, by neighborhood, by occupation, by gender and how much are they moving across those same boundaries? Right? Yes, And those become some of the indicators that I look at from the survey data to sort of try and, and see, is there a correlation? So people who move more across neighborhood boundaries, who move more across village boundaries, who work in mixed caste settings, so occupationally they're rubbing shoulders with people from different kinds of backgrounds, are they in turn more engaged in making claims on the local state and are they doing it in more or more diverse ways?
0: Right. Yeah. So. The quantitative research seems to chime with your initial hunch that people with these greater exposure to more diverse networks, perhaps, and through the causal mechanisms that you identify through the quality of research, are then coming to have higher expectations. But Gabby, I have a question. Is it possible that particularly gregarious, outspoken individuals might be, one, the people who are likely to have the biggest social networks, and two, uh, the more rambunctious individuals likely to make claims on the state?
1: Yes, yes, no, that's a, it's a great question, right? It's So it's, um, right, the movers and shakers. Yes. Right, right, the movers and shakers are the ones who... Do both. Of, you know, have yeah. the greater wherewithal and just know more, but they're just more likely act, uh, yeah. after all, right? Um, you know, and this, this is a huge challenge and survey research, like how do you observe the unobservable, things about personality, right? Um, So one thing I could do is I could put in a question that asks people precisely that, about moving and shaking and social interactions, but within their own neighborhoods, right? So this is about trying to understand if you have these sort of social proclivities and this intensity of social engagement, but within your own neighborhood, so it's not an indicator of exposure, right? It's it's an indicator of of
0: sociality, but not of exposure. So you try to control for personality type, and you find that even controlling for personality type I would say I control for maybe a small dimension, yes, a personality yes, type,
1: but yes, yes, that is the intention. At least.
0: And then you also do something which I love, um, is you look at an exogenous shock that might force people to have larger exposure. You look at land-labor ratio. Tell me about that. Yes, 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 yes. Right. So so here's the thing.
1: I do see in the survey data that greater exposure across these neighborhood, village, caste lines yes, it is correlated with a greater likelihood of making claims and a greater breadth of claim-making strategies, Mm. Um, but that begs the question, what's driving that exposure, right? And so in the search for something that could exogenously drive some of that exposure, I turn to the village-land-labor ratio. And the intuition here is that in an agriculturally-dominated rural economy, that traditionally is very bound up, right? It's bound by village, it's bound by neighborhood, it's Mm. bound by field, it's bound by gender, by caste, that Where, due to land degradation and population growth, where land becomes more scarce, and where people have to diversify their sources of livelihood, moving beyond those bounds of agriculture, that that becomes a driver of both social and spatial exposure. It's spatially a driver because people might leave the particular part of the neighborhood, or the village, or even engage in circular migration, looking for different kinds of occupational opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also a social driver because even if you stay in the same village, Mm -hmm. you're going to start engaging in different sectors, right? engage more in the service sector or start taking on other kinds of sources of livelihood um, you know trading other things in the marketplace etc so it changes there's a political economy shock Mm. uh, related to the environment and land degradation this is again drought prone environment drought prone state um, and also um, exploding population growth right so what used to be a primarily rural political economy is now a quickly diversifying rural political economy, and this is setting people in motion in yes. unprecedented ways, across caste boundaries, across neighbourhood boundaries,
0: across village boundaries. I'm with you. I'm with you. And another quantitative finding, two more quantitative findings that I think surprised me is one that you didn't find that literacy was associated with increased claims making. And that contrasting, we often think that more educated people are going to make claims. And I think what you, your data doesn't back that up.
1: Yeah, you know, so so the hunch would be in order to engage government and ask for a lot of stuff, you you need you need to be educated, right? Sure, learn, that's a capacity. You know how yeah. and information mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. And I actually find there is a big story for information and knowledge, but it's not one you learn in the classroom, right? right? So that's so that's one part of the story, right? Is that there are other sources of information mm. and knowledge that are much more important to put to work in terms of engaging government. So than you, you might learn be learning
0: about how to make claims on the state, but that's through observation and talking and mixing and mingling. Yeah, through
1: direct personal encounters with yes. different kinds of public officials, through narrated accounts of others, the stories that you hear. you're you're learning, you're observing, you're adapting, you're experimenting, that's not a classroom thing, right? But okay, is there, is, there, is there an independent effect of education? So what I find, right, is that at primary levels, no, there's, there's, a, there's really yeah. no effect. Yeah. At somewhat higher levels, right, it's at, at um, mostly at secondary levels, um, I find some effect in the breadth of the repertoire, right? Mm. So it's not just that you're more likely to make claims, but what's going on is you're more likely to try different kinds of things, right? So you're going to experiment more. You're going to try a broader yes. array of strategies. Um, and that's a difficult result to interpret, right? Yeah. Is that education, per mm. se, mm. or is it something about, going to school yeah is right? it
0: that the schools are in towns and through going to town then right. you're more likely to so particularly at the
1: people. tertiary level you're yeah, going yeah go uh, of town, course right? yeah absolutely and even at the secondary level there might be one mm. secondary school and we're talking about kind of very spatially segregated villages often with far-flung hamlets your primary school is going to be very local but that secondary school you're going to have to go and engage like in the center in the the, the, mm. the,
0: the main village right and i think this is kind of revealing so a lot of studies have looked at the effect of education and they assume that what you're getting from that is something about Learning biology or learning maths, but actually what we might be saying here is actually it's a function of mixing and mingling so that so so I think this might cast doubt on earlier data and then another finding I think was really interesting is that you find in context of high inequality that's also associated with lower claims making
1: yes no i'm really actually I'm really glad you asked that because there's sort of a big conditioning piece to all of this, right? So there's nothing automatic about greater exposure and kind of learning more about what the state's doing that would necessarily propel you to make more claims. It's not just
0: seeing other people doing stuff. It depends on what they do.
1: Yeah, so it depends on what you see the state doing and what you hear about the state doing. So if the state's not doing much, right, if you're in equilibrium Mm -hmm. of really low-level service provision or of highly unequal service provision, right, where, yes, the state's providing certain resources, but they're being captured by a local elite, right then that reinforces a message that is not worthwhile right yes. so so when i think about what is exposure actually doing like what mm. are the mechanisms and this largely comes from another round of qualitative work right what are the mechanisms so i see yes. this correlation yes. but why like what is it about exposure um, and I think it's
0: working through two different channels.
1: That so, are tell connected. me
0: about so, so, after doing the quantitative research, you, yeah. you then did this qualitative comparison of different villages. Right,
1: right. So, six villages um, case studies where I, what I was interested in was cross village and intra village yes. variation. So, even within the same villages, yeah. why do you see know, variation across neighborhoods, across yeah. um, different kinds of social groupings of people? Um, and, you know, and, and here is where I really got to dig into the, sort of the why right? Yes. And, and I think there are two different channels, and this is, this is what I kind of lay out in the book, which is one is that exposure is shaping aspirations. Yes. So what does that actually mean? It means that it's shaping your very interests in the first place. They're not like, like innate given interest, but no. okay, oh, here's a new program. There's a housing program. Mm. Oh, I am now interested yes. in getting a house, yes. right? So your very interests, like what you want from the yes. state can yep. be altered. Um, in addition, your sense of entitlement. Yes. Right? I see other people like me this is getting mm, to your inequality mm, question right mm. i see other people who are similarly poor like me who come maybe from the same tribal community as me or the same caste background as me i see them accessing that program so it's probably for someone like me
0: mm. right so it's not just seeing the state being responsive but seeing responsive to people like me then right. i think then that raises my sense of efficacy of what i can achieve by by petitioning the state right, absolutely
1: so that's a that's the third part right so not not just entitlement but the sense of efficacy which is both internal yeah. right if i raise my voice, someone might listen. And external, right? I can raise my voice, someone might listen, but that bureaucrat, that that official has the capacity Mm. or the political will to respond, Mm. right? And I'm going to learn that by seeing it happening around me, Mm. Um, but under conditions of vast inequality, I might see that happening, but it's happening in the really affluent community somewhere else, or it's happening, you know, in the city far off, and, and that gap is like insurmountable, right? That's the gap that is you know too too far for me to even think that what i'm learning in that other context is locally resonant it doesn't matter
0: for me in my locality mm-hmm. and i think this this theme of our expectations of the state also picks up with two of my favorite recent books one is, uh, is michner's book fragmented democracy and she makes a really similar point by by looking at medicaid and she finds that in states with very poor provision with very poor entitlements then people come to expect less of the state. And they again get trapped in these suboptimal feedback loops. They expect less of the state. They think that people like them can get less of the state, so they don't mobilise or push for better entitlements. Or then Alicia Holland's work in Latin America, Uh, she finds that if the states are, if, if, if governments are always providing better services to the rich, then poor people can not anticipate more from the state, so they may not even f- support greater state expenditure because they, won't th- they think it won't go to people yeah. like them. And so I think in all these contexts, whether it's the US Medicaid, whether it's Latin America tax and redistribution, or whether it's Indian ca- uh, claims making in your work, what we're seeing is this common mechanism that we observe the world around us in our local communities, we observe our communities, not national averages, but we observe what's happening in our place, in our networks, We develop expectations of our community, of our state, of what might be possible, and that affects our motivation. So it's a question of whether we then relentlessly mobilize. And I think what comes across in in your work is it's not like if you have higher expectations, then you necessarily get better services from the state, but rather then you're going to invest in that Mm -hmm. sustained petitioning which is necessary. then you
1: become the squeaky wheel, right? Yes. Then you keep pushing. You keep Um, pushing. Because you see, right, maybe not the expectation of service provision, but the hope. Yes, right? yes, and, the, and that and, the hope is and, and that hope yes. is generated by this by this exposure by this yeah. of seeing that the state is providing enough of the time and enough places that it seems plausible, it seems worthwhile. It builds a sense of efficacy and the sense of comparative grievance. Basically, you know, people yes. being sort of, "Where's mine? I see it mm, over there. Where's mine? Mm. Right?" And this comp- sense of comparative grievance, basically is an articulation of a, of a sense of entitlement.
0: And, and I guess with, with Michener's book, Fragmented Democracy, if it's state level and you're only seeing services in your state and you're not aware of what it's like in different states, then you just, there's that sense of resigned hopelessness and despondency and yeah. people get trapped yeah. into those situations of, of, of really, really, really yeah. terrible But if, if
1: I can say one thing about yeah. that, right, I think what cuts across all, and that you've, mm. you've mentioned two of my my favorite works as well, I, yeah. I, I love... Um, both Alicia Hollands and, and Jamila Mishner's work on this, and I think what they're all pointing to is that all of this is conditioned by what the state's actually doing. Yes, right?
0: so, yes. So this is the fundamental
1: condition. Yes, expectations
0: of are not exogenous. It's that they're, they're a response right. to what the state right. is doing. So what I like to say is that, that
1: these these claim-making repertoires, what how mm. people are engaging in the yes. state, is both socially produced yes. and state-induced. Right? Yes. They're responding Absolutely. to what the state's doing, but they're also responding through their own social networks and their exposure to what they're learning about the state doing elsewhere, and these this,
0: narrated accounts. And this, I think, is a, a crucial problem because there's a lot of uh, often uh, in donor interventions they might like try to tell people about their civic rights or their human rights mm-hmm. in abstract... And I think the real point here is actually it's about people have to see it to believe it. Seeing is believing, and seeing the state actually being responsive, yeah. then people trust that data because they've seen it with their own eyes. Yeah,
1: no, that's that's very important, and that's sort of if I said there's sort of two causal causal mm. mechanisms or two causal chains. One is about aspirations. Like yes. What you expect, yeah. right? The sense mm. of entitlement and efficacy and interest mm. and all this kind of stuff. But the other one, which speaks directly to what you just broke up, is mm. what what you just uh, spoke about is 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 capabilities, yes. right? And. There's so many informational interventions mm. and what we're learning and we had this big Meditta science article coming yeah. out recently that so, you know information is kind of like a wet fish right like yes. in and of itself it's not going to do much the question is when does that information get consumed and act upon like yes. in a lived way, right? Yeah. And so that's this, the second chain, which is that you're not only learn, get, gaining more information about what the state might provide or what services mm-hmm. are available, et cetera, but you're gaining the kind of this like tacit procedural knowledge yes. right, of what to do, right? How to be annoying enough that an official responds or where to show up or which kinds of brokers are most mm-hmm. effective, right? So you're, you're learning by watching other people doing it, by trial and error, by, you know, um, but you're, what you're learning is not information per se, yes. you're learning process and you're yes. learning this
0: kind of sense of, like, a tacit sense mm. of this sort of civic engagement. Mm. You know, a segue to my own research, you know, in uh, Zambia, all students, all secondary school students are taught and examined on civic education and their rights, and um, as part of my ethnographic work, I observed these classes, and in one class the teacher was writing about human rights on the board but the neighboring class was unsupervised because there was an absentee teacher, so they were being very, very noisy. So she goes next door to deal with them. How does she deal with them? She beats the entire class, and then she comes back to write on the board about human rights, and in that context, even if you're getting this information, this abstract idea, how you perceive yeah. what that you know what you're seeing every yeah. day is going to shape yeah. your expectations. And so then, if you interview the students after, you know, you know they they say, "Oh, these human rights this is just to to learn for the exam and then to forget." Yeah. No, right?
1: I I have a, I have a, I have a similar story. Um, uh, I'm a man in a rural village who was telling me about a land dispute. Yes. Um, and he's very upset about this. It's it's going on, been going on. It's a generational dispute, been going on for decades. And he brings out this file of papers, mm-hmm. like all these things, you know, um, wanting to talk about his land case. And right next to his house was a big billboard for um, the Right to Information Act.
0: Yes, yes, RTI, yes. RTI. Right? Yes, yes, yes.
1: Um, which and so this was, you know, it's painted like on the wall, mm-hmm. advertising mm-hmm. this act. Um, and I'm like, well, it sounds like you're not getting responses. You're not getting information. Like, have you considered mm-hmm. filing an RTI, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of looks up at the, at the wall and he's like, yeah, I mean, I heard about this thing. It's painted right next yeah, to his yeah, house. Yeah. And he's like, I don't know anyone who does that.
0: Right. right? Hand so
1: hand. it was like abstract information just painted yes, on the wall. Yes, right? exactly. But unless there is something in his social or occupational networks where he sees that as real lived experience in mm-hmm, resonant mm-hmm. in his
0: own context. He is not going to consume or act upon or believe that information. No, you don't trust it. The, the phrase I like to use is social change accelerates when we see that others are changing. Right. You know, whether it's the, whether it's the state or whether it's other people right. like us. Anyway, um, so, so that's thinking about what we see and what we've observed. You also look at how the interaction of gender and class. So I think, and I think this point is really interesting. So high caste women can afford to observe purdah, so they stay at home with less exposure, and they're less likely to make claims, even though they're high caste, right? And I think this is a really neat indication that exposure does not just emerge out of our personality types, Mm -hmm. agrarious or not, but it's an example of how social structures relating to gender and caste can increase exposure and therefore increase claims making. Um, so I, so when I was reading your, your book, I was thinking, well, here's a really nice example of how gender analysis can increase the rigor and the plausibility of the overarching theory. Um, you know, note to men, do more gender analysis and you can test your data yeah. by seeing that it's not just a function of personality types, but it's a function of social structure. And, and gender analysis can help you triangulate other claims about yeah. how exposure is driving things. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely, yeah, right. So the more the more affluent, higher caste women being more constrained in their mobility, um, in part because they don't have the economic shock and the need that's sort of pushing them out into the workforce or the fields or into the government work site. Um, and in part because of very uh, you know very strong, rigid social norms about what's permissible yes. and, and you know living under Purda and the ability to to move around um, you know, but but here's what's interesting yes right among so if you look for example um, among upper caste women, yes. you can still see variation I Really. Right? Have... and so this is where the, the, this is where the qualitative ah, okay. work gets really, really mm-hmm. micro mm-hmm. Um, so for example, one village so within the same village, yes. Um and I observed exactly this, right? It's mm. the lower caste women who are out in the fields and on the work sites gaining more exposure, they're more mobile, they also yes. have more economic need, yes. right? and that same economic need is pushing them to engage in the workforce, but also pushing them to engage right. in the right? and handmade, so this is right? the same as the so, land-labor
0: ratio, it's the, yeah. it's the, you, you're, the economic situation forces you to expand your social networks, and right. through that you see more things going on, through that you come to make right. claims on the state. Right, so that's the sort of big observation, exactly mm-hmm. consistent with what you said, mm-hmm. so
1: you know, upper caste women are, are, yeah. are moving mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. less, mm-hmm. less exposed, mm-hmm. but then, I come across this one group, and they're Brahmins, they're upper caste uh, women, um, right, who are all involved in running the local daycare center. Yes, um, and it's you know it's through political connections because they get paid a stipend, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so it's you know it's through political connections. This is a Brahmin dominated village, um, but because they're all involved in, in running this daycare center, this particular group of women, um, and they're called they're literally referred to in other interviews. They're called the active ladies. People talk to them like, oh, those active ladies, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason they're called the, the active ladies is they're an anomaly. They're not like the other upper class uh-huh. women. They are involved in claim making, right? They've been mm-hmm. you know fighting to improve the daycare center. They've been um, making mm-hmm. demands for. Um, household water connections, mm. things like this. Why? In part because they've gone to trainings for the daycare center, right, in like the block seat, mm. and, et cetera. And so their affiliation with the daycare center has like propelled them beyond the confines of the sort of cultural constraints that they would usually face, mm-hmm. right? So even there within
0: that group, you see this variation. Oh, that's really interesting. Right, Gabby. To crudely summarise the book thus far, we're saying if I see people like me effectively making claims on the state, then I too become more hopeful. And I mobilise or I relentlessly petition until I get what I have now come to want. So what are the implications of this? In a context of acute deprivation, how do we raise expectations and the virtuous circle of responsive governance, so that yeah. then people come to expect more. No, these
1: uh, the, these are these are the most important questions, right? And I think they're questions that are not just coming out of this research and this book, but sort of coming out, you know, coming out of fragmented democracy, or Alicia Holland's work on diminished expectations, or or your work, Alice, on you know how cities might erode gender inequality. All of these are pointing to something yeah. about feedback loops, right? Yes, this iterative thing about how citizens' ex- expectations are interacting with the performance. Of government the performance of state yes state um and how that feeds into itself over time and we can see we see a lot of evidence of negative feedback right? yes absolutely right. of traps um, of uh, right so you call it the, the despondency, despondency trap, trap right, yes which I, which I love right um right and and the question and i've got what's can i just say though yes
0: i should say that that term is not mine it's my boyfriend's term oh, pseudo erasmus oh, well, he invented the term so credit, credit where credit is due and <laughs> exactly, exactly 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 um,
1: Right? But so, you know, the despondency trap. And, and I think in the story that I'm telling from Muriel Rajasthan, it's, it's plausibly a positive story. It's plausibly mm. a positive feedback loop. Mm. But I'm not totally convinced that it is, right, mm. at the end of the day. Mm. And let me tell you why I think it could be a positive feedback mm. loop, and mm. let me tell you why I'm not so sure, mm. right? So, you know, there's, I think the way you summarize it is really nice. Like, there's basically two levels of punchline to the mm. book, right? One is greater social and spatial exposure can help people learn about the state. Yes. And number two...
0: And so, wait, just to pick up on that, if we wanted to increase social and spatial exposure, things we might do would be try to increase secondary education, or we might try to invest in ICTs, or we might try to improve transportation networks,
1: Right, transportation networks or for example the state of Bihar has done a very interesting thing giving um, schoolgirls bicycles yes um, to enable them you know to go to to, to go to school anything where, to expand mo- mobility, right? mobility um, increase mobility you know, and we've seen a lot of things that are not that are sort of unintended consequences for example the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act yes. which has largely been um, you know it's a program um, that guarantees 100 days days of work and it's largely women often, right, particularly when, when men are engaged in agriculture, mm, right, so mm. this becomes, you know, similar to the, some, of, some of the things that you're finding mm. in your work, it's sort of an exogenous shock, yes. pulling women, particular kinds of women, mm. and particular lower caste mm. women, into the workforce, right, yes. into the public sphere, mm. right, and so thinking about what that means for exposure, right, so that, that, that was a program that was designed to boost rural employment, yes, and as a safety net. An unintended consequence is that it's actually increasing exposure, right? Yes. So maybe policymakers can think more, right, so that some of these things aren't accidental, unintended consequences, Mm. but they're maybe built into design. Yes. But I think you know the second level, what this all hinges on, right? the Second punchline of the book. So the Mm. first, you know, exposure through exposure, people learn about the state. Mm. But what are they learning? Yes. And so all of this is conditional on. The fact that more responsive states can build more active citizens.
0: Right? Yes, yes. Right. More the responsive supply states t- can
1: build more active citizens. Less responsive states, you could expect the despondency trap, you could expect the diminished expectations, you could expect this negative feedback loop. And so, what I show sort of historically mm. in the case of Rajasthan yes. over time, right, it's going from a very sort of princely, feudal set of conditions and looking back at some of the kind of anthropological, ethnographic work of others from decades ago that show these like high levels of despondency and then trying to chase what, what changed in caste relations and the local political economy and the rural markets right? that drove this kind of exposure and how do we then see that reflected in a change in expressed aspirations and in, and in political engagement essentially. And right?
0: this is the same as fragmented to democracy that if the state does not supply good services then people expect less. So the real concern here is if you have austerity measures if people are making cuts to government, uh, then people may come to expect less. So for example, over the 1990s and 2000s, there was this wave of euphoria for good governance initiatives of let's cut back the state and let's fund NGOs. But the consequence of that is, if it's the NGOs supplying these very short-term projects, you know, people aren't then seeing a state supplying goods and services mm. and then that may lower their expectations. So all that good governance work could be very, very self-defeating. No, this, the, I, yes, I'm, I'm so glad
1: you raised that point, right? I think two things. One of the sort of the, the pre-existing conditions that underlies all of the stuff that I'm seeing mm-hmm. in rural Rajasthan is a massive explosion over the last 20, 30 years in the provision of Funded. social welfare, yeah, right? Yeah. So, so welfare a funding. huge influx of funding, a lot of it specifically targeted to the rural areas, the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, which I mentioned, right, being sort of the flagship of that, but, but many, many others. And so this expansion of social welfare spending, it's all relative, right? It's yeah. still deeply yeah. inadequate. It's still... Yeah. Sure, sure, like sure, way sure. below yeah. you know way below the benchmark compared to other places but but in relative terms mm. this dramatic explosion in spending a lot of it targeted to the mm. rural areas mm. and a lot of it channeled in a very local way through local village councils right mm. so it so more a broader social welfare terrain of the state. The state's Mm. doing more, and it's pushing local. It's a more local penetration of Mm. the state. So people literally just see the state all around them in goods and services and schemes and programs and billboards and hand pumps and schools. Now, is the water actually flowing from the hand pump? Is the teacher actually there in the school? That is incredibly uneven and variable. And so what I find is this combination of a breadth, right, the visibility of the state. Um, in social welfare provision, and unevenness. And you see it all around Mm -hmm. you. Um, but that's no guarantee that you are going to no, of course. So it's this combination of breadth and unevenness.
0: And in response to this, um, I would refer listeners to Ken, my podcast with Ken O'Palo, uh, my APSA podcast with him last week, uh, and uh, his pre- and his book on uh, legislative uh, politics in Africa. Because Ken O'Palo makes the point that in Africa there are these community development funds, which gives the MP greater discretionary power to spend a million dollars in in Kenya. And he argues that this is enabling this big cash injections in poor rural areas and then, as a result of that cash injections, people come to have oh, increased yeah. expectations of the state. So, it's, anything that yeah, can inject exactly. some money in there um, exactly. that will raise expectations and enable a positive feedback loop.
1: Let me say one thing, though, on yes. austerity, because this yes. is really interesting. One of my yes. favorite papers um, by Lauren McLean.
0: Yes, um, tell me about Where this. she
1: looks at. Um, she looks at what happens with these cuts that you referred to. Right? Mm. So she looks at Afrobarometer data um, across Sub-Saharan Africa, um, and she shows that people who historically, right right after independence in the 1970s, 1980s, engaged with public schools and public health clinics, mm. that later, after the 1990s and 2000s, and a couple decades mm. of austerity mm. and cuts, mm. right, are still more active politically. right? More, more likely to vote, more likely to campaign, more likely to engage in a whole array of different kinds of claim-making activities. Um, and what she argues is that there's sort of, that there's this lasting effect, right, this sort mm. of, this, this continued feedback loop of that initial experience that built expectations. Mm. And she says there's an expectations gap, right, mm. because of yes. authority. Yes, no, I think this cuts, is a crucial point, right? yes. There's an expectations gap, and she's talking about a tipping point. So for a while, that expectations gap is motivating because people remember how it could have been. I think
0: that's a crucial point. And they're point. mad. Yes. And that's
1: galvanizing. Yes, and that's motivating. yes, yes. But what she asks at the end of the paper, um, and I think we need longitudinal work that can look yeah. at this, but what she asks at the end of the paper is, how long does that last? At what yeah. point does it tip? And that expectation gap becomes a hollowing out, yes. a diminishment of expectations, more despondency, less pressure on the state. So I think that's a
0: crucial that. difference on why we need longitudinal research, as you say, because, for example, in my work in Latin America, when you had government service provision or when there were jobs, and then you had structural adjustment policies, people had these higher expectations. Then they were outraged, so they go out and protest for better water provision, et cetera. Right, so then the crisis, the shock, because I'm not getting what I deserve, That change over time is very similar to the geographical comparison of they're getting better than me, right? So there's a change in expectations. What what I I guess that's different from is if you were never getting those goods and services to begin with. And -hmm. I think that's why it's so important to explain change over time because those two people could look very similar, not getting their, you know, people people getting poor services could look very similar. But what matters is has one person Previously had very good services or uh, etc yeah. so that's why we need to their look at change over time. For expectations yes will be and this different. and this is the key point about your paper that we need to pay more attention to people's subjective ideas of what they can get and what they deserve, and you can't just read that off their material conditions you can't just read that off their level of income, etc we need to understand what people expect of the state because that will shape their claims making
1: yes and just to make it slightly more complicated, right? Please. And right. So exactly what you said, right? These are not kind of um, you can't just read it off of material conditions. Yes. Poverty is not uniformly mm. constraining. People mm. will have these different understandings of of entitlement, all of that. But that that's also state induced. Yes. Right? yes. So that it's not just kind of a latent bubbling up of pluralistic interests, but those mm. interests are responding to what the state's doing. It's responding yeah. to the terrain of the state and the institutions of the state and the efficacy of the
0: state. And that's how you can get a positive feedback, Lou. The more that people were mobilized, the more that the state might become responsive, and then you, but the, yes, yeah, so you can get that snowballing effect through those positive interactions. And, and you and can I th- get the opposite. And you, you, can, can, get get and out, and you can get the positive positive trapped into the despondency. So I think the key challenge for us, all as social scientists, is how to move from that chicken and egg, that trap, that despondency trap, into that virtuous feedback loop. But Gabby, I am so, I love this book. The qualitative research, the quantitative research is showing that these feedback loops exist and how we might move out of them. Gabby, thank you so much. Thank you, Alice.